From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, she makes it easy and helps keep more money in your wallet. This is For What It's Worth with Rabina ahmed Haq. Welcome to a new episode of For What It's Worth. I'm Rabina ahmed Haq, your host. I hope you'll join me for the next hour as we break down some of the big money stories of the week. And after this hour, I hope you leave with some information that's actually going to help you become more financially well. My agenda is always to leave our listeners with some information that helps them understand their money better, helps them manage their money in a way that makes them feel better about their financial future, help them save for their goals. And that's just the agenda that we have here on For What It's Worth is that we just want to make Canadians feel better about their personal finances. Well, I'm going to start the show on a bit of a negative note. I apologize. And that's because I think it's really important that many of us start planning for the inevitability of what is to come. There is a new report out by RBC, Royal Bank of Canada, that says millennials and young Gen Xers have the smallest cushion against job losses and are most at risk when their mortgages come up for renewal by early to mid-2024. So the situation that many young people or middle-aged, I'd say Canadians, find themselves in is that they haven't paid off their mortgage yet. They may have been in their mortgage for four or five years or coming up on five years, and they're feeling good because maybe they went fixed. And so they haven't been impacted by these interest rate hikes. But RBC is saying that as we see more and more mortgages come up for renewal in this higher interest rate environment, so you may be patting yourselves on the back saying, I'm so glad I went fixed because I don't have these higher payments to deal with. When you go to renew, you will be renewing in that higher higher interest rate environment. And if this is your first renewal, you're only five years into your mortgage, which is the case for so many millennials and young Gen Xers where they just bought their home maybe in their 30s and they've only been, you know, this is the first time. They're only five years through their first mortgage. So they're still pretty much at the top end of it. Uh, RBC is saying that by early 2024, Many people are set to, uh, whoever, rather, whoever renews their mortgage, the average Canadian that renews their mortgage is going to see their payments rise by 25%. So what do I recommend you do right now? First thing, look up when your mortgage comes up for renewal. So whether it's next year or the year after, plan for that. Start planning for that renewal date because more than likely interest rates are going to be much higher than when you first got that mortgage, maybe back in 2019 or 2020, 2021, before interest rates started going up. Second thing you want to do is you want to go into a mortgage calculator and you want to put in what your mortgage would be at that point and then guesstimate what interest rates might be. I'd say just go with what they are today. Just go with what they are today so that you can really protect yourself from what is to come in the next uh, couple of years when you renew your mortgage. And then start thinking, could you afford these payments for the long term? And if you can't, you will have to start making some decisions now so that you can shore up enough cash to make those payments. Because the last thing you want to do is lose your home or be unable to afford your lifestyle. So those are just some things that RBC is pointing out that many people, uh, especially those uh, who are between the age of 35 and 44, uh, are going to find themselves in a position where their debt to disposable income ratio is going to skyrocket because when they renew their mortgage, 
their payments are going to go up as well. And it's going to be at a point in their mortgage where they're still uh, heavily indebted. So it's not like they're at the end of their mortgage. They compared them to boomers, but boomers uh, are in a much better position where many of them already own their home. Only 14% of boomers actually still have a mortgage. So even if they do renew, they've probably had that mortgage for such a long time that they're not renewing on a large sum of money. And so they're able to manage those payments. We have a wonderful show coming up for you. Uh, After the break, we're going to talk to a personal finance expert from Wealth Rocket about a new survey that shows where Canadians are going to get their advice right now. And some of the places are not the best places to get some uh, money guidance. And he's going to show us where we should be going, tell us where we should be going uh, to talk about our finances, the best places that you can get that advice. And later in the program, we'll be speaking to our very own Craig Lord. He's Global News' national online journalist about his latest newsletter of ho- called Homeschool and how this month he's talking about all the expenses involved with buying your first home. I think a lot of people who buy their first home don't realize all the extras that go into getting that first home and getting that key to that uh, door of your first uh, real estate purchase. It's not just the purchase price. There's a lot of other things that have to happen that will cost you money. We're going to break those down with Craig Lord later in the program. We are going to take a quick break. I'm Rabina Ahmad-Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed-Hawk. 50% of Canadians get their financial advice from family and friends. And this is according to a new study by Wealth Rocket. And this is before they go and speak to anybody at a bank. They're looking at their own circle first, thinking, what advice can I get from these people who are good with their money that I could apply in my own? Now, the reasons more and more of us are seeking financial advice are obvious. The cost of living is going up. One in five that they surveyed feel that their finances are out of control. And so many people, many Canadians are seeking advice to see where they can get that control over their personal finances and put themselves on a better financial path. To talk about this survey from Wealth Rocket, we are joined by David O'Leary. He is the personal finance expert for Wealth Rocket and also the founder of Kind Wealth. Hi, David. Welcome to the program. Hi, Rubina. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. So I mentioned there how, you know, you know, 50% of us are going to our friends and family. Seems obvious. I, I'm sitting around a dinner table. One of my friends just, you know, bought their third investment property. I'm thinking, how do you do that? How did you get that and make that happen? Or maybe someone who's been able to buy some stocks that have done really well over the last little while. How did you know where, where to put invest your money in the, in, in, in the market maybe a year, year and a half ago? What's, what did the study show you? Where are Canadians getting their financial advice from right now? So interestingly, the the top three results uh, were family and friends at number one at 50%, uh, their bank at 49%, and social media uh, was third at 39%. And of course, respondents could select more than one um, response here. And so it seems like most people are, are using a combination of sources, but those, those, those top three are, are not necessarily where you would expect them to be turning for, for financial advice. And why is that? Why would you not expect friends and family to be the number one place that 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 you would go to get to get some advice on your money? Yeah, that's a great that's a great answer. I I, I guess I would say uh, maybe uh, should versus you know uh, expected. I think family and friends it, it does make perfect sense that you might turn there. I mean, I think there are probably very good evolutionary reasons why you know humans as social animals have evolved to to you know live in tight knit communities and to you know 
um, acquire and share information through trusted uh, members of their community. So it makes it makes perfect sense. Um, I think social media um, is, is one that was maybe surprising how how far up the list that made it um, coming in at number three. Um, and then, um, you know, between all three of those, there's just sort of questionable quality of the advice that you're getting. So it's not necessarily surprising that they're turning there, but that the uh, we really want to be careful about um, the advice that you're getting and making sure that it's, uh, you know, accurate and appropriate for you. Yeah, I think quality is that number one word because you may speak to somebody that will give you some advice based on their own experience, but you don't ask them any leading questions about, you know, where did they get this money from? How long did they save it for? Uh, you know, did they just happen to buy at a time when prices were lower? You just look at the results and say, wow, you've been able to do so well with your money. How did you get there? And you get sort of sort of very high level information and that may not apply uh, apply to, to, to your life. Um, you know, you, you spoke about social media there, there has been such a, a rise of finfluencers, even in my own career. Like when I started talking about mm -hmm. personal finance 15 years ago, there was really nobody talking about personal finance, even in the media, in a really legitimate way. And now every second person is, you know, giving advice on what people should do with their money. What are some of the risks that, that you know, that some of the obvious and maybe not so obvious ones uh, that we take when we take advice from those that those people that we see on social media uh, telling us what to do with our cash? Yeah, great question. So I think there's a couple things. One is that there's just a complete absence of any type of regulatory framework or, or oversight. So you have no assurance of the quality, the expertise of the individual, the quality of the advice that you're hearing, the expertise, uh, and the you know whether the individual providing that advice uh, has any proficiency requirements uh, uh, or standards around you know what knowledge they have to have before they start sharing advice. Um, so that's that's the big one. And and from, you know, I've had the same experience, I think, as, as you is just as this meteoric rise of the Finfluencer, which, you know, on one hand, I think is great because it, it allows uh, I, I don't think we need to, to treat the world of financial information as rocket science that only a chosen handful of people are able to provide and purvey that type of advice and information. Um, on the other hand, I, I do think that we do need some, you know, standards and and requirements and oversight to make sure that the advice that is being delivered is accurate and appropriate for the audience. And so that's really the the challenge here is is not not knowing what what type of quality and whether it's trustworthy. And it can certainly seem that way from the confidence with which the influencer is delivering the advice. It can sort of make intuitive sense or sound right, but when you sort of peel back the layers or if you have a, an understanding of it, uh, sometimes, you know, when it's wrong at best, it's because of ignorance. And at worst, it's because of, you know, the, that individual may not have any concern at all for the truth and only looking to gain, you know, traction, attention, followers, likes. Um, and so really being careful about that. I've, I've literally seen people give illegal information as, a, as advice, things that would, you know, wind you up getting in legal trouble for, for, for pursuing. So you really have to be careful. Yeah. I see so many, uh, people giving advice on such complicated, uh, financial products 
and investment strategies that it worries me that somebody would be so easily influenced that they would actually execute after listening to somebody that uh, that maybe doesn't even have the experience. They just sort of you know gather the information uh, from from online sources. Um, what where would you go? So if if you say had ten thousand dollars to invest somewhere and you wanted to do the right thing with that money, what would be the best advice for anybody? Uh, wanting to just get some good sage financial advice uh, for their for their for their money. Okay, so the best thing I can share, piece of information I can share, is that the financial advice industry is guilty of um, mixing up or conflating two different services that we all just sort of lump together as financial advice. So one of those services is investment advice. So that means you know you have some money saved, or you are in the process of saving money, and you want to know where you should invest it to you know give you the best return on your investment, and that's appropriate for you. Uh, the other uh, service or, or type of advice that you can get is what's called financial planning. And financial planning, if I'm going to just put it uh, succinctly, is every answers every other question you have about your money. So it would be things like you know, where, where is all my money coming from? Where is it going? Sort of looking at your cash flow and budgeting. It would look at things like, you know, do I need life insurance or disability insurance? Um, uh, do I need a will? And what happens to my money after I pass away? And which types of accounts should I invest through? An RRSP or a tax-free savings account? Um, how do I reduce my taxes, you know, on my, on my investments and my income? So it, it looks at a whole range of, of, factors and, and areas where money touches our life and, and helps essentially put together a, a plan for, you know, I have all these goals in my life that I want to reach. And I want to know if I'm on track to reaching those goals. Am I headed in the right direction? And what's the best way to, how do I get there the, the most quickly? So how do I optimize all of my money choices? So often a lot of times people go to a financial advisor who is really primarily focused on giving investment advice. And they have all these other questions about their money that they're not getting answered. So my best advice is most often when people are looking for financial advice, they, they do have all of these other questions outside of just which investments should I make. And so the best thing that you can do to, to, to look for answers to those questions is seek out a certified financial planner. That's the name of the designation. And that would be sort of a, a, the gold standard of, of designations in terms of ensuring that that individual understands financial planning and all the, the tons of complex rules surrounding uh, surrounding that. And so uh, looking and searching for um, an advice only financial planner or uh, is, a, is a, type of, it's a type of independent planner who really just gets paid for providing you advice and not for selling you a financial product like insurance or a mutual fund. And, and as you mentioned there, it takes out the um, many financial advisors have been accused of uh, giving certain investment advice because of uh, because of uh, money that they'll make, so com uh, some uh, compensation that they'll get for selling certain products, and so that takes that whole sort of anxiety out of that conversation as well. You know that you're paying for the advice, and they're looking at your finances holistically and giving you uh, the right financial path. And it, it may not even include where to invest, or rather, just tell you that you know put this much money in RSP, and then you go and seek out the investments that you want to buy. Uh, maybe through another source or through your own research. I would actually add financial therapist into that as well too. Some people really have a lot of trauma when it comes to the way that they've managed their money and the way they've seen their money money and their family being managed and they need to work through that before they can actually have a 
healthy relationship uh, with their with their bank account. Uh, speaking of trauma, last year has been very traumatic financially for many Canadian families. How have you seen um, in the last year uh, just the way that we consume financial information? How, how have you seen that change in the last year? I think you know. I think we've seen a continuing of two trends, um, and and they seem to be escalating. The, these two trends. One is the um, general. Uh, increasing mistrust of mainstream media, which I think is really unfortunate. Um, so people, you know, deliberately looking to having an anti-establishment sort of mindset, um, and and looking to alternative sources of information um, for their advice. And so social media, I think that is a big part of why social media has been expanding. I think as well, just on the social media front, the proliferation of video is just such a it's a much more rich form of communication online and so with things like TikTok and instagram video the influencers can you know speak directly to a large number of people in a way that feels a lot more personal than if you were just sort of sharing a, a, a written post and then the other is uh uh so sorry those two those two factors combined i think are really leading people to drive more towards social media than i've ever seen in my uh, career to this point yeah, for the first time since the pandemic, people are just taking such a bigger interest in their money. Uh, you know, even things like uh, emergency funds, which didn't seem like they were all that important because it may, for many years there was no major emergency uh, that we had to deal with. But then all of a sudden we had this emergency that affected so many of us all together that we realized, wow, if I just had some cash on the side, I probably would have felt less anxious in March 2020 than I did because I would have known I can get through uh, the next uh, little while. We have just about 30 seconds. I'm I mean, if someone is really just starting on their financial journey, you know, here on the show for what it's worth, we really try to make financial muse more palatable, make it accessible. Where would you say is the first place someone could go just to get that first bit of information if, if they feel like they just never really paid attention to their personal finances before? Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but the, the searching for an advice only financial planner is a great way to start. And just sort of a little known, you know, fact is the vast majority of folks who work in that space will typically have some sort of form on their website where you'd, you'd tell them a little bit about yourself and then you'd book a time to have an intro consult with them. And that intro consult, they'll ask you a bunch of questions about your circumstances and really just try to help to figure out if they're a good fit to be able to provide advice for you. But that that intro consult can be pretty valuable where where folks can you know talk to a financial planner and just get a you know very quick Hey, does it make sense? Do I need financial advice? Where, given where I'm at, do I have any major, you know, issues that you know that are, you know, re, you know, jumping out at you that I should be really alarmed about? Because they'll they'll ask you some high level questions. So it's just a great place to to get a, a handle on: Do I need advice right now? And if so, someone who can explain to you for free, like how and why it would be valuable for you to get advice. And then, of course, you're you, you're free to make a decision. You don't have to work with them at that point. But there's no cost to just having that introductory consult. David, thank you so much for joining us today and having uh, you know this really great conversation about where we can go to get uh, financial advice and where we are going according to the study uh, to get some of that uh, get some of that guidance. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
That was David O'Leary. He is the personal finance expert for Wealth Rocket and the founder of Kind Wealth. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to speak to Craig Lord. He's Global News' online journalist about his latest homeschool newsletter. We have Craig on every single month. And this month, the newsletter is talking about all the steps you have to take before you buy your first home. I'm Rubina Ahmad Huck, and this is for what it's worth. You're listening to For What It's Worth with Rabina Ahmed Hawk. I've been there. Being a first time home buyer is stressful, to put it lightly. The learning curve is steep from how to secure financing, how to get your down payment together, how that impacts payments, all the legal jargon, the inspections, and the negotiation process. It's a lot as a first-time home buyer, to learn all of that in relatively short amount of time. So to walk us through what it means to be a first-time home buyer and all the things that go into getting ready for that, we're going to talk to Global News online journalist Craig Lord. He's the author of the Homeschool Newsletter. And this weekend, it's up there right now, globalnews.ca, he's focused on what first-time home buyers can do to prepare for that first purchase. Hi, Craig. Hi, Rubina. Thanks for having me. Craig, so many of us have been through this process, buying our first home. Through your research, what have you found? What's one thing that really stresses first-time home buyers out? Yeah, uh, it's definitely a relatable stress. It's a bit of a, a, a rite of passage that uh, home buyers have to go through. And it's it's a real, real fast education because uh, depending on the timeline for your closing, you might have to learn a lot of really specific legal things really quickly uh, and feel comfortable with them before you sign on all those dotted lines. I think the thing that people really need to be prepared for after they've, you know, found that home, signed the purchase agreement is the closing costs, because it's not just your deposit, your down payment and, and getting settled for those monthly mortgage payments. There are a lot of kind of incremental costs that come up that you have to be prepared to pay. Uh, there may be some obvious ones, more obvious ones like property taxes, uh, the land transfer taxes that you have to pay in most provinces after a purchase. Um, those will, will rack up in, in the thousands of dollars. The good news there for most first-time buyers, depending on where you're buying, is you can expect some reimbursements uh, for first-time buyers. There are a lot of incentives uh, for, for, for people who are just breaking into the, the market. They're, it's their first purchase. Um, take a look at some of the uh, calculators that are out there. In Ontario, for example, you can look at a land transfer tax calculator to tell you what you should expect to pay based on if you are a first-time buyer, what the definition of a first-time buyer actually is, uh, and where you can expect some, some money back. The other things mm -hmm. that you want to look out for from lawyers, for when, from talking to your lawyers, are some of those incremental costs like uh, title search, title insurance. There might be a broker fee for you to pay. So those are some some fees uh, as well as you know paying your lawyer. That'll probably run upwards of a thousand dollars as well. Those are fees that kind of rack up on top of the land transfer taxes. Those are things that you want to have extra money set aside to prepare to close that transaction. Closing costs. 
And it is in the tens of thousands of dollars. I think people do fail to recognize that these costs are not something, it's not just a few hundred bucks. I mean, the, the lawyer fees can be up to $2,000, depending on comp how complicated your, your closing costs are. Uh, you have to get an inspection done. That can be another 500 to $1,000. Um, and then there's those taxes that you talked about. And if you're in the city of Toronto, you're paying uh, two property taxes, one to the municipality, one to the province. And that is in the tens of thousands of dollars, especially with home prices, where they've gone. Before we get into how much we have to pay, you mentioned a little bit about some of the, the breaks that first-time homebuyers get. Can you go through that? Some some things that homebuyers can expect uh, to take advantage of as, as, you know, as they buy their first home? Yeah, so I mentioned there, uh, some of your property tax, uh, the, the land transfer taxes will be waived or you'll get a reimbursement that you can claim on, on your taxes. Federally as well, we have the first-time home buyer's tax credit. Uh, so you won't get that up front. You'll, you'll have to pay some of those things uh, ahead of time. But when you are filing your taxes the year after you purchase that home, don't forget to to add that uh, when you're filing your, your taxes. You'll, you'll be able to take a little bit off of your income for that year and hopefully get a nice little bonus back from the, the CRA for um, your, your first purchase there. Um, look up uh, certain provincial uh, certain provincial programs that will probably be able to help you out. Those, of course, vary uh, from province to province, territory to territory. Like I said, these costs for first-time buyers can be quite surprising and a little bit overwhelming, especially as you mentioned with where home prices are in so many markets. There are a lot of programs that are specifically tailored to a few markets that will help make that process of breaking into the housing market a little bit easier for those first-time buyers. Yeah. So what I understand is that uh, your closing costs are about one and a half to four percent of your uh, of your the value of your home. So that can be up to you know if you're buying a million dollar home, that could be up to forty thousand dollars that you pay on top of what you bought your home for. And then there's also the immediate cost of moving uh, that I think a lot of people don't uh, don't factor in. I mean, to move ex is expensive. To hire movers to take your stuff from one place to the other. There's always some uh, small uh, projects that have to be done. When when you move into a house, you know, fixing something, painting something. Talk to me a little bit about just the first couple of weeks of owning a home and some of the, the costs that may arise just because now you're a new homeowner in a new space. Yeah, exactly. You mentioned earlier inspection. So if you got an inspection done, if you had that condition on your, your home, you probably, uh, even if you didn't, you probably want to get an inspector in after the, the 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 close of the purchase, just to understand what what is the immediate work that needs to be done in your house. What is the maintenance, the things that have maybe gotten overlooked over the past few years uh, under the previous owner. You also want to kind of get settled and, and make sure that your home is your own home. One real estate lawyer that I recently spoke to mentioned, don't forget to change the locks on your home. You, <laughs> yeah, you, exactly. hopefully got, <laughs> yeah. you hopefully got all the keys in that transaction, but sometimes people, you know, lend it to a friend or a neighbor or a, a family member. And then uh, you wake up in the middle of the night and some stranger is sleeping on your couch. Uh, a, a real estate lawyer I spoke to said that recently recently happened to their clients when, you know, some things get lost in translation. So um, there, there are a few, uh, a few housekeeping, literal housekeeping things that you want to make sure you're, you're settled on. There are also some legal things you want to make sure you're settled. If you are moving into a house with a partner for the first time, you might want to make sure that wills are set up, that you have all your legal obligations set and that uh, in the event of, you know, unexpected uh, tragedy or, or even a split in the relationship, that you know how the house and, and your new 
financial responsibilities are going to be settled. Those are some things that often, often get overlooked in the excitement of buying that first home. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. I mean, even when you're first thinking about buying your first home, there's a lot to consider how much down payment you can put down, how long it's going to take you to save that down payment. Um, what should anybody who's right now thinking of, you know, okay, next year I would like to, to purchase a home. What can they be doing proactively now to financially prepare for that so they can just improve uh, their, their chances of actually purchasing that property? Yeah, so there are a few things. Obviously, anyone these days who's got a little bit of extra money to set aside at the end of the month, you're in a good position. And that's maybe a, a spot you can really consider, okay, maybe moving into homeownership next year or the next two years is actually in the cards for me. Uh, I would recommend taking a look at the new first-time homebuyers account, the new tax-free savings account that the federal government kind of rolled out this year, and that many banks, credit unions, and, and other institutions have slowly been rolling out through 2023. That'll let you set aside uh, about $8,000 a year per person to save tax-free. That'll help you uh, accumulate what you need as long as it goes towards that first purchase of a home. Uh, it's one of the uh, most popular vehicles these days for for making sure that you can uh, accumulate the the what seems to be a very very difficult uh, bar for people to meet that down payment, especially in some of the more expensive markets in Ontario and BC. This can be a, a bit of a saving grace for folks, I think. So uh, look up that first home buyer's account. Um, do do whatever you, you you can to to cut down on costs and make sure that uh, not just you can afford your current life but that you are set up for a lifestyle that includes home ownership, which means maintenance costs, uh, potentially accommodating more costly mortgages and property taxes. So do a little bit of that budgeting in advance to make sure that your income, your lifestyle is suited for home ownership in a couple of years. Is there something that first-time home buyers overlook that then costs some money, maybe in the first couple of years of them owning that home that maybe they should keep in mind when they're when they're shopping for that first property? Um, the thing that comes to mind on that question, and it goes back to something I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, but the, there are some legal considerations that you might want to have as a first time home buyer if you're in the situation where in order to save for that down payment, you got help from a, a family member, maybe mom and dad. If your parents are contributing to the purchase of a home, uh, make sure that when you are speaking to your real estate lawyer, that you hammer out exactly how that money is accounted for. Is it a gift? Is it a loan? If you are moving in with a partner, what rights do they have to that money? Because no one really likes to talk about it or think about it, but if that relationship doesn't pan out, if there's a split and you need to sell the home, that can affect uh, you know, each individual's claim to that initial money. Your partner, you know, they might have a claim to the down payment to some of that equity, even if they didn't contribute that initial amount. It depends on who's covering some of the carrying costs for that mortgage. Those are questions that are uncomfortable, but that you do want to bring up with a lawyer. Make sure are hammered out ahead of time because you can get surprised, especially these days when it's very, very common for people to get outside help for those down payments. You can be surprised by how costly a split can be, even if it's obviously not what you had in mind when you first uh, were very excited to purchase that home. 
Even the way the mortgage is structured, uh, the one thing that surprised me, which it shouldn't, uh, was the first payment. It comes out about usually six weeks after you've purchased that home. By the time they figure out what you know what your payment schedule is going to be, and that first payment includes all the interest incurred occurred incurred since you bought that property. So it's higher than what your regular payments are going to be. And that to me really surprised me. Um, are there other things about mortgages that maybe people just don't understand how they work that they may be surprised about once they they actually get into their payment schedule? Uh, yeah, you definitely want to, uh, to have a good long talk with a mortgage broker. If, if you went through a broker or the lender, if you're working with a big bank, they might have a mortgage agent, mortgage agent, to help you understand your your rights and responsibilities there. Um, one of the things uh, you want to make sure, and I, I have to confess, I was a little bit surprised and I got caught off guard by this, is how not just your, your monthly payments are accounting for your mortgage and the interest payments there, but how are your property taxes being paid? In a lot of cities, uh, your municipal property taxes, they can be paid either in uh, single chunks or, or, or two chunks for, for, for uh, each half of the year, or you can uh, set it aside on a monthly basis so that that property tax is taken out on a monthly basis. I have the situation where I thought my property taxes were being taken out each month, and it turns out they were not. So I was stuck with uh, hefty bills uh, midway through the year that I was surprised by. So uh, understand that uh, if you are trying to set up uh, that kind of a, a property tax settlement, make sure that uh, make sure you understand what is coming out of your your monthly your account on a monthly basis. Uh, that'll help you avoid shocks like uh, happened to myself. I, I have to confess, it's it's uh, not easy even for uh, for money journalists to to make sense of all the figures that are are, are moving when you uh, become a homeowner suddenly. And there are so many moving parts. We should go through what people should expect, the kinds of people they should uh, expect to uh, to come in contact with when they're buying their first home. I think the real estate agent, if you would agree, Craig, is probably your point of contact for most things. Uh, they're the ones that are going to find the, the the real estate lawyer for you. They'll help set up your inspection. They may even help you with some of uh, you know the, the financing, meaning getting you in touch with a mortgage broker or a, a person who can help you me- uh, understand how much uh, how much more mortgage you can qualify for. Is there anybody that I'm missing there that you would come in contact with uh, when you're buying your first home? So you're right. I think your real estate uh, agent, maybe you heard about them through a friend or a family member, word of mouth, or or you just went with someone who had a a really good Google review or two. Um, These are the people that are probably going to be your point of contact to help you uh, build out your network. They will probably have references for mortgage brokers that they often work with real estate agents that they often work with um inspectors or even after your your um your purchase closes and you need a bit of work done on on a home your real estate agent probably knows a a handy person or two or or can refer you to to an hvac company um these are the kinds of people that uh in your first year at least of home ownership and as you're going through the process you're you're going to be meeting a lot of people um you can usually rely on your, your real estate agent to have a little bit of a network already built in uh, to to help to answer those questions, to to make sure that the process moves fluidly. Home purchases happen every single day in Canada. Uh, so it's the people involved, even if you're new to it, it's old hat for most of these folks and they can help to hopefully guide you uh, place from from you know the starting position 
to to uh, getting your keys and and beyond when you're you're starting to settle into that that routine of home ownership and, and getting associated with those costs. Craig, thanks so much for joining us today. This is such a, uh, you know, if you ever want to learn about how to buy your first home, just talk to somebody who just bought one because they've gone through that process. But also read this month's edition of Homeschool because I think this is a subject that so many of us don't realize how complicated it actually is. So Craig, I really thank you for joining us today and getting us up to date. My pleasure, Rubina. Thank you. That's Craig Lord. He's Global News' online journalist, also the author of Homeschool. It's up on our website now, globalnews.ca, talking about all the things that first-time home buyers should consider when it comes to their finances uh, before they get that key and open the door to their first home. There's a lot that goes into it. It's not just the purchase price. There's a lot of other expenses that you are going to have to pay before you can get into that first home. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about charity scams with so many tragedies happening around the world, including here in Canada with wildfires throughout Western Canada. A lot of people are opening their wallets to give to causes to help those people that have been impacted. But how can you make sure that your money is actually going to the cause that you want to support and that you're not being scammed of your cash? I'm Rabina Ahmed Huck, and this is For What It's Worth. From understanding a global economic crisis to crunching the numbers at the grocery till, you're listening to For What It's Worth with Robina ahmed Hawk. The best things in life are free. But you can well, that brings us to the end of our program. I want to thank everybody for tuning in for the last hour. I hope you got something out of the conversations that we just had. I really enjoyed speaking to Craig Lord uh, about his latest uh, episode or latest newsletter, Homeschool, which is now up on the globalnews.ca website. Uh, You can read about all the money that you need to save in order to buy your first home. And it's not just the purchase price of a home. There's other costs involved. That includes your legal fees, your inspection, uh, the property transfer tax, which a lot of people don't realize how expensive that can be. 1.5 to 4% of your purchase price, that's what experts say you need to save in order to close all the closing costs of that home uh, and get that key and, you know, get into your first property. So it's not just figuring out your financing and your payments. There's a lot more that goes into closing your first property, any property, uh, but the first time is always going to be very difficult because it's the first time you're really experiencing all of that. Uh, The other thing that we are experiencing in a big way right now is a lot of uh, tragedies happening across the globe and here in Canada due to climate change. So we're seeing wildfires across Western Canada. Tens of thousands of people have been displaced. And what do we do? We want to help as Canadians, those who have been most impacted. We open up our wallets. We donate to charities that are on the ground. But before you do that, you want to make sure that you are donating to a place that is legitimate. It, you know, it is always a good idea to open your wallet when you can afford to do so. But you want to make sure that the money is going to a place where you actually believe it to be going to. So the number one thing you can do is make sure that the charity is registered. It will have a registration number on the CRA website. So you can go there and see if it is a registered charity. Also, you'll get a tax donation slip, which you can then use to get a little bit of money back uh, when you file your return next year. 
uh, for the 2023 year. But even if you're donating to a crowdfunding site, which wouldn't be a registered charity, so you're giving to a specific cause, maybe someone is trying to raise money for a family that's been impacted by uh, by these fires or by any other tragedy that's happening, you want to make sure you know the person that the money is going to, uh, because these are much more locally uh, local efforts where they're really tapping their own network uh, to raise some funds. And so you want to know that the person collecting the money is someone that you trust and the person that the money is going to is someone that you trust. Um, also, you can call the charity and ask some questions about how that money is going to be spent, how quickly that money is actually going to be used. Some charities have been accused of holding on to money for five, six years before they actually spend it. Ask them about their track record. There's been so many other unfortunate events that have happened across Canada and across the world that charities have been, have been involved with. So you can ask them what they did in those events. And if that's satisfies you, then you can give them your money. The best way to do it by credit card. Don't send cash or e-transfer. You always want to have some sort of electronic, uh, although e-transfer does give you that electronic receipt, but you really credit card is going to protect you uh, in a way that wouldn't wouldn't be protected if you were to send an e-transfer. So those are just some tips if you are opening up your hearts, opening up your wallets to give to these causes uh, to help those people who have been displaced because they do need it. I mean, charities do great work. And the charities that I spoke to, they say, you know, out of all the charities that we hear about, only one to 2% of those pretending to be charities are actually uh, illegitimate or scam. So the vast majority of people who are contacting you are legitimate individuals, but you still want to make sure it aligns with your values and you can do all those things. Call them up, uh, find out more about them, find out more about the work that they do before you uh, give your hard earned cash towards that cause. Uh, We will follow this story and also find out other ways that we can help those who are affected by wildfires. We'll keep you up to date on that next week. Thank you so much for uh, listening. Thanks to James Petrovic, our technical producer. I will see you here. Here next week, same channel, same time. I'm Rubina Ahmad Huck, and this is for what it's worth.